Hello, hello, hello world. Hello world. Hello world. Hello world. Hello world. Hello world. The podcast. All right. Well, we should first talk about because since this is the first episode of this podcast talk about what this podcast is yeah that would be good so do you want to call it do you want to call it hello world the podcast yeah i think we should call it hello world keep it simple and yeah do you want should we call it hello world or hello world the podcast let's do hello world the podcast i say i was we- thinking hello world the archive the archive. Okay, I like that. Better. Maybe <laughs> I don't. It's not. That's not that catchy. But I feel like that's what this is, which yeah. is so. It's the back catalog. So, you, who are you? That's a good question. I'm Ashley Vance. Should and I do the well, whole thing? I don't know. Well, so I in these interviews, I, I a quote from you was, "I fancy fancy myself an amateur Silicon Valley historian." <laughs> So would you say that's a good introduction to who you are? Yeah. Um, I'm a reporter and I'm a author and sometimes I pretend to be a Silicon Valley historian and just a geek. And I'm Ryan Manning. I used to make Hello World with Ashley and then I quit because I was disillusioned by the tech industry. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's good that we brought you back. Um, Yeah, can I, I was just gonna explain a little bit of what we were doing for people who might have stumbled into this for the first time. Yeah, I mean, so we still make this Hello World TV show um, for Bloomberg and mostly for YouTube, I think. And, um, you know, my whole thesis when I started was that there's like an absurd number of reporters covering technology in Silicon Valley and not paying attention to a lot of the stuff that was happening in other places that was getting more and more interesting. So we make this TV show and and the TV show is great and definitely want people to go check it out. But when we film these things, we have these long interviews with really interesting people on really interesting subjects and it all gets boiled down um, to pretty short form. And just got tired of that and I wanted an excuse to kind of learn more about these people and and um, so anyway we thought we'd start this podcast yeah one reason I wanted to call it hello world the archive is because we're gonna go back through all the interviews you've done for the show and pretty much I think a lot of the time play them in full I'll cut out things like when whenever there's like I don't know a microphone problem or something I'll cut <laughs> I'll cut that out for the people you don't have to listen to that but mostly everything is in there and as a camera person I I was like a camera person for Bloomberg and for The Verge and so I had the privilege of being behind the camera and listening to all these really interesting scientists and people in technology talk at length about their what they're doing and then like you said we would cut it down into just like bites sound bites for YouTube because our producers and people on top would be like, people don't, people don't have the patience for that. They're not going to sit and watch. <laughs> they're not going to sit and watch all this. So we would boil it down. It really did suck because all the subtleties about what they were talking about would disappear. And so I, I, I was always talking about how we just need to release the audio on these things. Maybe it won't have as big an audience as a video would, but I think it's worth it to, to get this stuff out there. It just sucks. It's sitting in these uh, hard drives. Yeah. And I was like, I am a sucker for like, 
everybody's backstory and for sure where they grew up and how they became what they became and what was your childhood like (laughs) yeah i love that question and then uh, even though and then we run the tv show i mean it's it's running pretty long now we're doing like 40 50 minute episodes but it's still you know you just meet these people for like five or six minutes and so i wanted more yeah so I imagine that, I don't know, one way I imagine that the shows could start is like um, maybe with some like sound design where you're walking down into an archive and like some big metal doors open. And then you come down and you see me and I'm like uh, like this mo- monstrous guy that hasn't seen the light, that hasn't seen the light in years. And Ashley, welcome, welcome down back to the archive and nobody's come and talk to me. I like it. And then you ask me what you, you like, the, for the first episode we're going to do is the godfathers of AI, artificial intelligence. You say, pull me, can you, can you pull up for me Jeffrey Hinton? And I'll say, oh, Jeffrey, yes. I'll go in the back and I'll pull out this audio file and then we'll, we'll play it for the people. But before that, we'd have to add some sort of context to who they are, where you were at the time, what you were, what story you were trying to get from them, etc. Sort of add context before the we play the interview. Yep. So I don't know. Is that that sounds you, cool? That do we introduce really cool. the show do anymore? I you, do I call you Igor the, or do I the, call you like? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, like another thing is we another like we had a blast shooting the first season of Hello World. We would we would um. We would go. We would sit. We were driving around Australia and New Zealand in this van, and we would go and talk to these scientists. And then we would get done with the interviews, and we would get back in the van, and we would have these long, sprawling conversations about this stuff, like pseudo intellectual, sort of stonery guy. Like, whoa, what about this? And so maybe I don't know. I don't know if you want to do that, but like maybe after the interview, we both. Uh, are you going to re-listen to the interviews? Yeah. So we'll re-listen to the interviews, and then maybe we'll have like some sort of little like. After, like some thoughts, some oh like, yeah. What do you think about what we just listened to? Yeah. Anyway, it was always my favorite part of doing the show is the yeah. car ride. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to bring the audience into that van and yeah. have those maybe some of those conversations afterward. And you know they can skip through that if they don't like that, but that'll be fun for us. Hello world. Hello world. Hello. Hello world. Hello world. Well, okay. Do you want me to take a crack at setting it up, or? So yeah. So the first, the first episode of Hello World the podcast or Hello World the archive is going to be a four-part episode. Oh, I don't know. Here, my I, I was I was telling you before, like I wanted to make like one super episode about the history of AI, but then I re-listened to all these guys, and I was like, that's gonna take me forever. <laughs> <laughs> and also, maybe be an irresponsible thing of me to do. So I feel like maybe we first talk about what this, why you were drawn to this story in the first place, and sort of go through the the bullet points of what the history was and then we'll just play the first interview okay so the question is what initially drove you to the story what is the story yeah AI is one of these topics that i don't cover you know exclusively or anything like that but i definitely follow and you could see over the last few years 
it had really taken off. And as I was doing my research, I just kept hearing about this weird crew of Canadian professors, for the most part, who had played this really big role in in making modern AI as we know it take off. And that seemed strange to me. I'm based in Silicon Valley, and you always get the sense that this is kind of the epicenter of AI. And I just sort of figured it must have been a bunch of folks here who really made it all happen. But the more I dug into it, this was true. There was this whole crew of people who basically spent 30, 40, in some case, 50 years pursuing these techniques that everybody else thought were crazy. And these guys were just determined that one day these strange AI methods they were pursuing would work. And then, you know, somewhere around like 2009, 2012, it all starts to click and these people become famous after all these years in the wilderness. And so I wanted to go meet them and find out how this all happened. And this is from the Canada episode of Hello World, right? You yeah. talked to all these people for that episode. I watched the episode. It was really good. I think Thank like if, if people want a summary of what, what these interviews are, I think you can watch the episode and get a good taste of that. But this is, this is going to be – we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of some of these things. Yeah, I don't think anyone had ever like if you want the yeah, if you want the quick version, quicker version, I don't think anyone had ever kind of collected all these people in one place. And we also had the handsome Justin Trudeau make a cameo oh, in yeah. the episode. Um, so it's got everything. So do you wanna talk about the from like the late forties to now? Yeah. What were the key points of the history of artificial intelligence, but specifically neural nets? Yeah. Neural networks. I mean, anytime you hear people talking about AI, you know, there's different flavors of AI, but the stuff that we hear about in the news today is all based on this stuff called neural nets and deep learning and machine learning. And these were techniques that, even though they only just started to take off, people were researching as far back as the 1940s. The U.S. military was into it. Universities were looking at this stuff. And... In the 1950s, this guy named Frank Rosenblatt, who was a professor, he actually develops what I think most people consider the first neural net. And so just a bunch of just a bunch of computer processors really working on on a problem. And he built this thing called the Perceptron that was based on this neural net. And it does or it did exactly what the modern stuff does. He actually had like image recognition where you could put a picture of a man or a picture of a woman in front of this machine and it would tell you, you know, what sex the, the human was. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so he was starting to do these rudimentary things with these neural nets and, and places like the New York Times and the New Yorker wrote these glowing profiles about how this technology was going to change the world and our robot overlords were right around the corner. And then I read a little bit about the Perceptron. It was a physical device. It wasn't just a concept. Yeah. No, he actually built this thing. I mean, it was like a big, big computer. Um, it was in the Northeast. I think it might have been at Cornell. And yeah, no, they built this actual thing. They did demos that the, the newspapers and magazines saw. So people were hyped about the Perceptron. Then what happened? It died very quickly. So one of Frank Rosenblatt's colleagues, who was actually like an early backer of the Perceptron was this Marvin Minsky guy who was a computer scientist. And he started digging into the work a little bit more, and he realized that these neural nets were super limited at the time. And he wrote a book 
you know, kind of crapping all over it. And, and that was basically the end of neural nets. And it wasn't cool to, to research them anymore. And people considered it basically a dead end of computer science. And people swung back to what is known as, as symbolic AI, which is like a much more um, kind of logic based uh, AI. And that's, that's really what like dominated the mainstream as it was, you know, from the 1950s on. Yeah. And that, the four godfathers of AI that you have interviews with went back and read a lot of the Perceptron stuff, um, tried to resurrect it, saw the limitations, and then tried to fix them, right? Like, Yeah. And I think the interesting thing, I don't know if it holds true for all four of them, but definitely for most of them is like all all these people were just like obsessed with how the brain worked that was kind of their first and foremost calling i guess um you know even less so than just being computer scientists or something like that they all wanted to like reverse engineer the brain and know how we tick and i think they all saw this neural net idea which is basically like in this case you know it's it's really imperfect cuz we still don't really know how the brain works at all and and but just this idea that you have computing elements that represent neurons and that you could string thousands or millions of these together to work on a problem um, I think they were all inspired by this idea that we could somehow build a mechanical equivalent of the brain and so even though these ideas behind the neural net were out of fashion pretty early these guys on some level were all kind of convinced that this would work one day in the end. And so they, you know, they were kind of on the fringes of computer science departments, but they kept just publishing papers about different techniques for how you would feed these neural nets and algorithms and just kind of kept at it for a really long time. So the thing that you, the reason why you were drawn to this story is just how long of a history neural nets had where they were just not popular at all. They're sort of below the surface, not really talked about. And then suddenly, within the last decade or so, neural nets are running everything in our world. We see them yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it's kind of my favorite kind of story. I mean, in tech, we're used to like all these overnight billionaires, you know, even something like Facebook or even, even stuff that takes like five, six, seven years. You end up with these people that get rich seemingly overnight or some technology takes off overnight. And, you know, I just thought that was the hilarious part of the story is that for the rest of us, it feels like this AI computer image recognition, um, you know, like translation, all this stuff that suddenly just started working out of nowhere. You, you just got the feeling that, oh, like there must have just been some guy at Google that, uh, you know, just crack the code on something and now it's working. And then when you dug into it, it was like, oh no, this was like, it took 50 years. It's kind of a rare story these days. Yeah. And the crazy thing about it is they talk about nothing has really changed. The theories behind everything has been the same since the fifties. Nothing has changed except for computers finally got powerful enough and the data sets, which these neural nets study have gotten large enough. Yeah, it's funny when you go back and read guys like Jeff Hinton who had these algorithms and they would feed it data and they'd run it on this computer. And, you know, even though they knew because of Moore's law, computers were always going to get faster. I think it's like hard for the human mind to like fully imagine what will happen in 30 years or 40 years. And so most people would just look at the results and sort of be like, oh, you know, this didn't really work. Why would it work if you just threw 
a lot more information at it. It's not working on this. And these guys were kind of convinced it would. And then suddenly, kind of like 2009-ish, you get these gaming chips that NVIDIA uses. And um, all of a sudden, you know, you get that and you get like Google-sized data and you shove it into this computer and everything started working. It is a wild story. <laughs> there's there's one part in the story that you keep talking to him about, which you refer to as the dark period, which is like the <laughs> mid-90s where ne- everyone had given up on neural nets, but these guys were still championing the idea. Yeah, I mean, there's like, even though I kind of make it sound like after Marvin Minsky came along, the whole thing died. I mean, there would be these moments where stuff would sort of start to work again and people would get excited. I think like even in the 80s, Carnegie Mellon had a self-driving car program. And and um, so there would be these, these like ups and downs all along the way. Um, but for much of the time, all these these four main godfathers were seen as like outcasts in the computer science world and they would like have to go to conferences and sort of hide at the back and and put misleading titles on their papers so people wouldn't just laugh them you know and dismiss them out of hand and and they kind of downplay it now i think cuz they're doing so well and they're trying to be i don't know like humble yeah um, but yeah but they were uh, you know they were for sure they were just like the the outcast of the computer science world everyone thought they were basically wasting their whole career yeah and now what, how are they doing now? Now they're rich. <laughs> Should I say like the names of these guys? Is that a good time? So the 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 big guy, the biggest guy, I'd say is Jeffrey Hinton. He's definitely the oldest, and not the biggest in size. But he he. He's looked at like a lot of the other guys in this group look up to him as like yeah sort of, he was he was kind of their teacher and he works at well so he's at the University of Toronto still but he's also so all almost all these guys now they're kind of like professors but also out on loan to some big bad technology company and so Jeff is uh, he's kind of Google's Google's guy and then Ian Lacan Ian Lacun Ian Lacun. He's, he was another professor. He met Jeff a really long time ago, spent like a year studying under Jeff in Toronto. And then um, he worked at Bell Labs for a while and actually like proved that a lot of stuff could work commercially. And then now he's Facebook's AI guy. Yashua Bengio. Another professor. He's in Montreal. Um, same sort of thing. Was in the the little Jeff Hinton, Jan LeCun support group of... Uh, unloved computer scientist and then now he's he's actually like a little more of a pure academic than the other guys he started kind of some venture capital stuff and then he does some corporate consulting but as far as i remember he doesn't have like a full-time overlord you mentioned he works with almost he works with google facebook he he kind of he dips his toes in a lot of different corporations he's, he's a he's a free free player he's free range and then finally rich sutton yeah, and Rich is like a little bit different from these other guys. So he does, he's at the University of Alberta. He recently got semi acquired by Google, like the rest of these guys. Um, he does this like slightly different branch of all this called reinforcement learning. The guys in Alberta are kind of famous for 
winning games like poker and checkers and all these things and video games with their AI systems. So that's kind of his specialty. Let me think. Is there any more foundational knowledge that we need to talk about, like history-wise? Well, a part of the reason this happened was, you know, some of these guys like Jeff Hinton and Richard Sutton in particular, they were in the United States for a while uh, in both cases. They weren't super big fans of where the money for AI research was coming from, which was mostly the military. And so they, you know, I'd say they pretty much like actively were trying to distance themselves from the Department of Defense in the U.S. And so they ended up making their way to Canada. And then Canada has this weird role in this whole thing, which is like for reasons that are not totally clear. They decided to like fund this group of weirdos that everybody else thought were were ruining their careers. And so, you know, there was actually like a Canadian, um, you know, like government organization that was that was giving these people money to have meetings, to pursue their research in some cases. And you could kind of argue maybe none of this would have happened if if they hadn't had support and been able to get like a critical mass um in one place where they could all, you know, swap ideas and everything. And yeah, it's just funny because even, I mean, obviously Canada's full of bright people and good scientists and stuff, but but in terms of like number of people pursuing AI and everything between MIT and Stanford and Berkeley, um, you know, Canada was pretty far behind and yet they, they kind of trumped out. That organization you're talking about was CIFAR, right? CFAR, yeah, I forget what it stands for. It's like the Canadian Institute for something, something. Yeah, you keep mentioning that a lot in the interviews, and I was wondering <laughs> what that was. I thought there was a guy named CFAR that just kept giving him money. <laughs> Sounds cool. Oh, and there is there is one other thing we should mention, which is the outlier in all this, just to oh, give him yeah. a name check. Yes, otherwise I will get uh, many angry emails. But there's a guy named Jürgen Schmidhuber who is not Canadian, and he's a researcher in Switzerland, and he was publishing papers on a lot of these same ideas from this institute in Lugano, Switzerland, which I had the pleasure of visiting. It's like one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But uh, so Jürgen, he came up with a lot of these ideas, and there's like this big debate. If you go on Reddit, you can spend a lot of time watching people fight about all this stuff. Um, he sort of argues that he came up with most of the seminal ideas before the Canadians, they sort of argue that he like just floated ideas but never really saw them through and proved they could work and so was just kind of like um, marking intellectual territory without really backing it up. And so there's kind of like this ongoing debate. I mean, there's no question that Schmidt Huber is like also one of these Godfather type figures, but he's he's definitely been like left out of this this kind of Canadian history that's been written. And then last year, Hinton, Bengio, and Lacoon won the Turing Award, which is like Nobel Prize style computer science award, and and Jurgen was left out, and that was kind of a, a big controversy. But you said you, you have some, some real dirty audio of your interview with him. So maybe, depending yeah. on how bad it is, we may play it. <laughs> I do. And then we can, I'm sure we can find stuff like he, he gives a ton of speeches. We can grab some like YouTube stuff of uh, 
Jurgen. He's like, is that enough? Is that enough for people? Like, that's pretty long. But I also feel like you do need a, people need a little bit of a download of what the whole scope What's of the story yeah, is before know, you man. before yeah. you care about who these people are. Yeah, I mean, it's just a fucking crazy story. You know, you think of like, I don't know, Canada doesn't get a lot of pub in computer science. Usually, it's nuts to me that this nice, peaceful, quiet nation unleashed this uh, fear upon us. Yeah, and that is something you talk about a lot with them is just the AI doomsday scenario. That's a thing. It's interesting to hear these the Godfathers talk about their perspective on the issue. Yeah, what did you think about that? Because they're they're not like uh, they're not big doomsdayers for the most part. No, I, I it was uh, the I forget who said it. I think it was it was Jeff Hinton talked about how when the Large Hadron Collider there was that rumor about how the Large Hadron Collider was going to form a black hole and suck up the earth (laughs) he was a little bit concerned with it as because he wasn't really a physicist and then he talked to his physicist friend and his physicist was like no you're fine and so he's like the people that are concerned with the ai apocalypse are the people who aren't working in ai yeah yeah i thought all these guys were it's like either they're downplaying it to kind of make us feel better or they know so much that they know we're actually much farther away than than like Elon or Bill Gates or someone wants wants people to to think. Did you look into Jeff Hinton's background at all? Not beyond your interview. So cuz his family is crazy in a like mind-boggling way. So his I think his great great or great 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 grandfather was George Bull who was this mathematician that basically came up with the logic behind modern computers hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And then his dad was like one of the world's leading insect experts. One of his, uh, was like a cousin. She was one of the few female scientists to work on the Manhattan project at Los Alamos. One of his other like, uncles or grandfathers invented the jungle gym. One of the other ones came up with uh, the idea of the fourth dimension and the tesseract. And it sort of like goes on, on and on and on. Like this is it's this crazy family that for, I don't know, three or 400 years has produced like all these PhDs. And the, the George Bull thing is extra crazy. I mean, you got this guy who creates like the logic behind modern computers all these years ago, and then this, you know, this other dude comes along and makes AI out of all this. When you say George Bull, like uh, for some reason, that's uh, did they mention Boolean something? Yeah, so it's Boolean logic. That's him. That's the guy. Yeah, they mentioned that a few times. So that's that's some fundamental computer idea. Yeah, it's kind of like before, even before. Um, Alan Turing and all this stuff, it was like, could you make a machine think, uh, not even like in that directive terms, but it was like, what sort of logic would you use, you know, to, to get to the math that could do stuff like this? Hmm. So in the first, the first of our godfathers is Jeffrey Hinton. Where do we find you and Jeff at this day? When was this? Where was this? This was like a fall day in Toronto, actually at the University of Toronto. Jeff has, he's got like a little office there with his stand-up desk and um, he was cool. He spent a bunch of time with us. We, we did like a little walk around campus. He has this very 
deliberate, quick walk. He's hard to keep up with. And so, yeah, we hung out and then we did like a little, um, we did our interview like in a, in a pretty courtyard up there. All right, let's go to that interview now. I don't really know how to like, <laughs> is that enough? Is, is that enough of a setup? I think that's good. How much time do you spend in this office? Um, it depends. Um, I come here quite a few mornings. And then I spend the afternoons at Google. Is there a method to your classification system with all the papers in here? Uh, no, I just sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Chuck them up. <laughs> And you like to stand, right? All the time. No, I hate standing. I'd much rather sit down, but if I sit down, I have a disc that comes out. So okay. I haven't sat down since 2005. <laughs> like, <laughs> never. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, man. So I that's stand why. for 16 hours a day. Yeah. And then, so that's why they took all the chairs away at the conference. Yeah. yeah. Okay. My buddies stood in sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> Shame, man. So what do you do when you're eating? Oh, that's very interesting. I can kneel down to eat, but now I've got bad knees, so I can't do that anymore. Um, so I stand up and eat. Well, like, what if you're at a restaurant? I stand up and eat. The same thing. At the yeah. table? Yeah. So everybody else sits and you stand? Everybody else sits, and about once every five minutes, a waiter comes and offers me a chair. <laughs> I say, no, thank you. And then another waiter comes and offers me a chair, yeah. and I say, no, thank you. And the record so far is seven. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hurt your back doing something in particular, or it's just? It's a combination of genetic stupidity and bad luck. Okay. Like everything else. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm genetically prone to get osteoporosis. Um, I didn't eat any dairy products when I was young, so I got very low calcium. And I tried lifting something very heavy when I was a teenager. And that so stuck I with you, yeah? yeah? Oh, man. What was it? Oh, um, in Britain, they had things called storage heaters, which use electricity at night to make bricks hot, and then they release the heat from the bricks during the day. Um, and so you can use cheap electricity. And so these were um, pushed by the electricity company because it can run its power plants at night then. Okay. Um, and they were about 300 pounds, and we had the living room decorated and the decorators didn't paint behind the storage heater for good reason. And my mum said, could you just paint behind the storage heater? So I <laughs> bent over to lift up this thing, not realizing it weighed 300 pounds, and I pulled as hard as I could and um, crushed some vertebrae in my back. Oh, man. God. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. I think it would be hard to live your life without being able to sit. <laughs> well, I could sit for a long time. Um, it's just I, my back kept going out and it got worse and worse. And yeah. By about 2005, it was crippling me, so I stopped sitting there. Yeah, well, at least now standing desks are fashionable. And Yeah, but I yeah. was ahead. <laughs> I, was standing when, I was standing when they weren't fashionable, just like neural nets. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, magic. The, uh, is there anything else? Yeah. So the... And you always take a train, why do you do that? Um, you don't so drive, don't right? Sit down. Oh, so you, okay. I can't sit down, so I okay. can't drive. I can lie on the back seat of a taxi, and I can stand on a train, or I can go in a bedroom on a train, and you, that's how I get to California. I spend three days on a train. You take the train to California. I was wondering well, how you got to Mountain View. Yeah. So I, 
I tell people I didn't fly, and they look very indignant and say, well, how did you get to California? I thought, was a train. I thought it was a climate change kind of thing. No, 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 nothing to do with Okay. Change. You know, if you provide a private jet with a bed on it, I'll go on that. Well, that's right, you gotta get Sergey to send you the, the jet. <laughs> well, I did once. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, that's the perk of working for Google. What made you, what made you willing, you know, to, to go to Google? Obviously, Yashua's sort of tried to stay on the academic path and, well, with Element AI. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, but was that like a tough choice at all to kind of blend academia and the, the corporate no, world? No, because I went to work there one summer and I really enjoyed it there. Yeah, you were an and intern. They have a great team leader called Jeff Dean, who's kind of a legend at Google. And really, he actually, when he was a student, he was interested in neural nets. And then he built a lot of the system stuff for Google. Yeah. And so he's... Everybody there loves him because he basically built their system. And he's now really into neural nets and he really understands it. And he's just got a great group there. Yeah. And he has unlimited resources. And you were, I mean, you were an intern. They labeled you an intern when you were there. That was because to be a visiting scientist, you have to be there for at least six months. Okay. Um, and my theory is that when they allocated the space for the records about interns, they only allocated six bits for the age of the intern. <laughs> and since I was 64, I showed up as zero, so yeah. I didn't go over the threshold. <laughs> <laughs> I think I must have been the oldest intern. Yeah? Yeah. The, uh, we now? We're still going. We're going back. Where was it? It's like back over here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just to the right. Yeah. Yeah, that's University College. Okay. And I'm a fellow of it. So, well, there we not go. That I, not that I've ever been to anything. We're going with the right person. But I, I guess if they transfer us out, I can. <laughs> what does that? I mean, what does this university mean to you? It seems like it's always given you a bit of a safe haven. Yeah, it's a nice university. Um. Just as far as like being able to, you know, pursue what you wanted to pursue. So I know funding is part of it, but the basic thing is the Canadian funding system. They have a very good system for funding basic research. It's not quite as good as it used to be, because politicians are interfering with it. But basically, they provide a modest amount of money for basic curiosity and research. So if you want to do basic research. You don't have to spend huge amounts of time writing grants. You don't get huge resources, but you get enough to have a few graduate students, and you can just get on with it. And that's really and that's what I did. And that's very different to the U.S. It in seems the like US, the U.S. In the U.S., most of the best universities are private, and they really want you to bring in lots of money. Right. They live on the grant money that the professors bring in, and also the U.S. funding agencies. Um, if you get money from them, they want you to write lots of reports. And whereas the NSERC here, you get money for three years or five years. At the end of three years or five years, you write a short report on what you did. And it doesn't matter if you did what you said you were going to do. Okay. If you did something else that was better, that's fine too. And if you didn't do anything, you don't give you money for the next five years. Okay. So it works very well in not wasting scientists' time. Yeah. It's a very efficient use of money. Ooh, we could go here. 
And then on top of that, there was an organization called CIFAR that sort of gave extra money in particular areas where Canada was strong. Yeah. And the extra money was designed to facilitate interactions between Canadians in different areas, in different parts of Canada, and also internationally. My impression is you must be very good at convincing people of things because it seemed like you talked CIFA into sticking uh, with this idea at a, a difficult time. Well, CIFA also, it sort of fitted with CIFA's mission, which was to, um, focus extra funding on areas where Canada was excellent and where you get a big payoff from having more interaction between researchers who are widely separated. Yeah. And this area was just like that. So, because there weren't that many researchers doing it. And there were some very good researchers, but you know, some in Israel and some in Finland and some, quite a few in the States and some in Canada. And so they allowed more of those interactions, which is very productive. So, Jan had been my postdoc, but I hadn't interacted with him much until this CFA program came along. Have you walk down to that red pole and come back, and then you're gonna go to the right? right. Okay. Thank you. We're going back into that uh, quad back there. Sorry, I hate all this part of it. You I, just, uh, I just like chatting. Well, yeah, this is gonna be another part of it. What? Where we actually talk about stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, yeah. Okay. No, that's coming next. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I mean. I don't like all the... Uh, yeah. Have used to be a poor idea. Yeah, well, so, well... It's much better, because it's about the ideas. Yeah, well, but even my regular job is way better, because I just get to right. sit and chat with somebody for, like, two, three hours, and, and uh, wait? Okay, oh, sorry, this said go. Right. Yeah, I get to just sit and have a proper conversation with people and, and then soak it all up and, and produce something, yeah. so... Um, but this is fun, too. You get to... It's so different to what I've ever done before that it was fun to do for a couple so of years. So you work for Bloomberg now? I do. So I used what to write, did you do before? I used to write for The Register, then I wrote okay. for The New York Times, okay. I wrote for The Economist. The failing New York Times. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. And then, uh, we'll just go down here. And then I used to freelance for The Economist a bit, and, um, okay. and then really, so I worked for... The Economist does a lot of good stories. Yeah. It was, it was a fun place to write for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I write, uh, so I usually write for Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and I write like the five, 6,000 word feature stories. Okay, uh, and that's what this is going to be? Well, this is, uh, oh, I should tell you too. Well, so no, but this, this is, is TV, TV, this is right. TV. But yeah. I am writing a profile of you. I don't know if anyone told you, but we have this thing called the Bloomberg 50. It's like 50 people from the year who, did something spectacular, oh, made it, you made it, and oh. I'm, I'm writing a profile on you for that. Oh, okay. So I will be taking Bloomberg like... Bloomberg 50. Yeah, I'll be taking some of the stuff from this interview and, um, and putting it into that. Yeah. No, so, so we just look casual. We do. It's going to take them just one right. second to and get everything set the, up. Just the, always to me. <clears throat> yeah. Um, now my voice is going. We will, well, we'll do our best. <laughs> is it? Are you feeling sick or...? No, no, I've got a varicose vein that's burst. Oh, shame. On one of my vocal cords. Oh, no. This is like a... It's much better than having um, throat cancer. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So we... It's something that you just live with. Yeah. And oh, when I talk a lot, it makes my voice go kind of... You can hear the sort of gratiness in the voice? Twanging, is it? I don't. I can but... do two pitches at once. Yeah. Because <laughs> the vocal, vocal cords are meant to vibrate like this. Okay. But one's heavier than the other now, because uh, of the blood on it, and so it vibrates slower. So I can do two different frequencies at the same time. I thought you meant this was something that had just sprung up, but this is like oh, an ongoing no, thing. Oh, no, it just burst a couple of days ago. It happens every so. Okay. 
the so do you try not to travel that much then since you always have to do it by train or yeah 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 i try not to travel that much which is great i mean yeah it's very distracting yeah and the and then so you're either at the university or you're going over to the google offices yeah. and so a typical day i'd go into university for an hour or two and then i'd go off to google for lunch and when you're here you're just chatting with the students or talking with students or doing my email or going to a seminar or something. And at Google you have a team that's part of the team at Google now. Part yeah. of the, the Google brain? It's part of the brain team. Okay. The, the Toronto part of the brain team. Is there like a particular project you guys are working on at the moment? There's several projects, yeah. Um, so there's one project where we're trying to what I talked about in Montreal, we're trying to develop a different kind of neural net that yeah. will be better at recognizing shapes. And that's going quite well at present. It is much better at recognizing shapes. Okay. So. And is the rest like top secret or is it? Yeah, uh, the rest is top secret. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was there a difference? I mean, was there anything that struck you about going into the corporate world, the, the, the pros or the cons? Well, I don't really feel I'm in the corporate world because I'm in the brain team. And the brain team is very like being in the academic world just with more resources. Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit similar. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. I mean, so there's people developing applications like the machine translation and stuff, but they're the same people as are doing basic research. So Google doesn't have a big split between people doing basic research and engineers developing products. It's the same people do both. And if you have a good idea, you then try and turn it into a product. Um, and so it's a very similar to university environment. Um, and we're encouraged to publish stuff. The main difference is that you um, have much better lunches yeah. and far more resources. Yeah. So in terms of compute power, we've got immense compute power. Is it, it must be funny to you after all those decades of trying to talk people into all this stuff to see Google knocking on your door, Facebook knocking on weird. Jan's door. It's very and, weird. And this. Basically, now, Google thinks this is the future of the company, and Microsoft thinks it's the future of the company, and Amazon thinks it's the future of the company, Apple thinks it's the future of the company. My own department thinks this stuff's probably nonsense and we shouldn't be doing any more of it. <laughs> so, 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 so I took everybody into it except my own department. <laughs> Just because you, they think it's, it's, it's hit a wall already, or? They think it's a bubble. Yeah. And what do you think? I think it's not a bubble. Yeah. I think it, the, the point is, it's now being the previous generation of neural nets in the 80s. We were very optimistic about all the amazing things it would do. And it did a few impressive things, like Jan's system that read characters on checks. But it didn't do lots of amazing things. It didn't solve all sorts of major AI problems. This generation, it's made speech recognition work a whole lot better. It's made vision, it's completely revolutionized computer vision. It's completely revolutionized machine translation. So it's not a bubble, it's not gonna go away because it's being used everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. And everybody who knows anything about it realizes it's about to completely revolutionize all sorts of other areas. So you, well, okay, so you stay optimistic. Yeah, so you think the- No, I don't think that's optimistic. You think it's- I think that's just- The way it is. How it is. Yeah, yeah. okay. I'm not particularly optimistic, you know? I'm not an optimistic person. I just think this stuff is here to stay. Yeah. Are you guys good? Sorry, just want to make sure because I want to walk us back a little bit. Okay. I know there's some things you've had to talk about before, so I apologize for repeating some of it, but it's new audience.
If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, just say your name and, and however you like to be identified. Um, so, I'm Geoffrey Hinton. I'm an Emeritus Professor at the University of Toronto. Um, I'm also the Chief Scientific Advisor of the new Vector Institute in Toronto. That's for doing AI. And I'm also an Engineering Fellow at Google. And I spend most of my time running a small basic research lab at Google in Toronto. Yeah, magic. Um, and I, like I said, I know you've had to answer some of this stuff before, but you obviously grew up in the, the UK and you had this very prestigious family full of, of famous mathematicians and economists. And I was, you know, I was curious what it was like for you growing up if there was just always this expectation that you would end up in academia somewhere. Um, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Um, I think by the time I was about seven, I realized I was going to have to get a PhD. Um, <laughs> my mother sort of made it clear that I didn't have to be an academic. I had a choice. I could be an academic or I could be a failure. <laughs> and this was just from like all these generations of, of people doing... Fail. It was mainly my dad, actually. Yeah. My dad was very obsessed with the family. And, and is this, it's just um, a genetic... Thing no, that you, the, the, no, it's environmental pressure. Yeah, and did you enjoy that? No, or did some you, genetics too, I did. Did you rebel against that, or you you went along? I dropped out every so often. Yeah, I became a carpenter for a while. Well, I wanted mm. to get to that, but that was a little bit later. When yeah. you were, you know, in your younger years, did you rebel against it, or did you kind of go along? No, with I, the, the I went along with it. Yeah. Mostly. Okay. So, and I read about there's this moment pretty early on in in what would the United States be your high school years, where uh, a mathematics mathematician friend of yours, um, you know, he gets you going on this quest yes. to start thinking yeah, about the brain. Brilliant. Would you mind telling me that story? Um, I can't exactly remember what year it was, but pretty early on, sometime in the 60s, in the mid-60s, he sort of introduced me to the idea that memory in the brain might be, a memory might be spread out over a large portion of the brain. Um, like a hologram, because holograms were brand new then. And the point about a hologram is you take a piece of a hologram and you remove it, and you still have an image of the whole scene, it's just a bit blurrier. And he had the idea that, other psychologists had this idea too, that maybe members in the brain were like holograms. And that's what got me going on your own networks. What was it about that? Because I've seen you describe this a couple of times, but I couldn't get to sort of the essence of, of why that sparked this interest for you. It was just that somebody was describing the brain in a new way No, it's just you. a very interesting idea of how you would encode things in the brain, that a particular fact or a particular image wouldn't be encoded in a few neurons. It would be spread over all neurons. Okay. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, and then, so in my mind, there would be a couple ways to pursue this, and I would tend to go more towards maybe biology or neuroscience, but you went to university and you did philosophy. No, I went to university and I did physiology, okay. which is neuroscience, yeah. right? I did physiology and physics. Um, well, that's not quite true. So I went to university and I did physics and chemistry and math, and after a month I dropped out. Um, and I went and worked in London doing various things for a year, and then I reapplied to do architecture. Um, and after a day, I dropped out. <laughs> so, and I dropped out and switched to doing physics and physiology. Um, and I was the only student at Cambridge doing both physics and physiology. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't have any biology background, so physiology was quite tough. And I was really excited because in the third term, 
they were going to tell us how the brain worked. And that's why I was doing physiology. And we got to the third term, and it was taught by very distinguished people like Huxley. Yeah. Um, and they taught us about how the brain worked. But their idea of how the brain worked was there's neurons and there's action potentials travel along the axons of neurons, and that's it. But they didn't actually say how it worked. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like work? saying, I can tell you how a computer works. There's, the, there's these electrical potentials. Right. There's no storage. Like, I can no, tell you how it works, yeah, right? Yeah. And it took me a while to realize they weren't telling us how it worked because they didn't know. Um, <laughs> and so then I switched to philosophy. And when, even architecture, all these different pursuits, were they all uh, in the quest for the brain, or architecture no, was the architecture, outlier? No, architecture, I was in just the... interested in architecture. Okay, but so you, this whole time, you're, you're, you're kind of consumed by this idea of you want to know how the brain works. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so then I switched to philosophy, and they didn't know. Yeah. Um, and then I switched to psychology, and they really didn't know. So. <laughs> and then you ditched Cambridge. Then I ditched that and became a carpenter. And, what and the, then uh... I went into AI, and they didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> But so you worked as a carpenter for about a year? Yeah. And doing what? Building houses or...? No, 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 I wasn't that good. Um, building shelves and things and cupboards and hanging doors. And, and that was what? Just to bide your time until you figured out what to do to, next? Uh, or? Yeah, yeah, just to make a living. Okay. And then doing we, something I liked. And then given the pressure from your parents, they must have reacted poorly to that? Yeah, they weren't, uh, they weren't too pleased. Yeah. Mm. So you say, um, then you went into AI. I mean, you, you got a PhD I, in AI. You went deeply into AI at that point. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I went to Edinburgh and um, studied with somebody called Longett Higgins, who was a very clever guy, um, and had worked on neural networks. Right. And just before I got there to work with him, he decided neural networks were nonsense. <laughs> um, and so I spent like five years arguing with him. And he kept trying to persuade me to stop doing neural networks and do more conventional symbolic AI. And this was what, like the late 60s, 70s, or? This was the 70s. Okay. So I started my PhD in 1972. So even at the very outset of you pursuing this, it's already being dismissed. 1972 was about the lowest neural networks ever got. In 1972, everybody who did AI was convinced they were complete nonsense. It was part of this a reaction to that perceptron. Yeah. yeah, the perceptron book was that came out in '69, and that pretty much destroyed the field because it was seen as overhyped and and yeah. And what was interesting about the book? It was a very good book. There was a lot of interesting technical material in it that was very clever. But then combined with that, there was the sort of strong underlying claim that when you make multiple layers of this stuff, nobody knows how to train them in any way, it's all hopeless. And people sort of accepted that. And people accepted that until quite recently, that the idea of having multiple layers in a neural net and just training it all from scratch, where you didn't put any, any knowledge by hand, all the knowledge came just from the data, people thought that was just crazy wishful thinking. Yeah. Like when you saw the perceptron, what did you think? When I saw the book? Well, I was watching a video this morning, and I mean, it was interesting to me because it, it was so similar in a lot of ways to what we do today, where it was trying to tell the difference between a man and a woman, and they were just feeding it all these faces, yeah. and, and I mean, it, it's 
Yeah. Very what similar. we do today is like that, but it works. Yeah. So, yeah. so like, were you familiar think, with that type of example oh yes. back then? Yes. There was a big book called Principles of Neurodynamics, which was about this thick, by Rosenblatt, and that was one of the first things I read. Okay. So, and I'll, he understood much more than people gave him credit for. He understood all the objections people were making. And what do you think it was inside of you that? kept you wanting to pursue this when everyone else was giving up, just that you thought it was the right direction to go? No, that everyone else was wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you kind of have to flee. It was just obvious to me that it was the right way to go. The brain has to work somehow, right? Yeah. And the brain sure as hell doesn't work by being programmed. I mean, you can try programming little kids, you can tell them what to do, but it doesn't really work. Um, so obviously, almost all the knowledge we've got, we've learned. Um, including how language works. Yeah. So there's this big sort of conspiracy that language can't be learned, which is complete junk. I mean, it was based on some very bad mathematics. Um, and, but everybody believed it. Everybody believed language is innate. Um, and it just struck me as ridiculous. I mean, it's incredible to have that sort of confidence, though, at, at that time. I think it was partly that my parents were atheists and I went to a religious school. And so I was very used to everybody around me um, believing in God and me knowing that it was just complete nonsense. Yeah. And that, that turned out, I believe, I turned out to be right about that too. <laughs> and, and that's very good training for a scientist, to be in an environment where um, there's some obvious nonsense that everybody else believes. Because most of science is like that. Yeah. That's funny. Though. I, I grew up in West Texas. And my parents were staunch atheists, and, and you know, everybody went to church. And when I was a little kid, right. I couldn't understand what everybody was doing. Exactly. And it, it seemed very strange. And it gives you confidence in your own opinion. It, gi yeah. gives, you, it gives you, uh, at least it's a reasonable theory that everybody might be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see that now when you put it like that. Um, yeah. So, well, the UK is, is you know, already rejecting neural nets, then you head to the United States, to California. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, it's not that I couldn't get a job in the UK, I couldn't even get a job interview. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then I saw this wonderful opportunity in California, and that was a huge liberation, because in California, they thought neural nets might not be all nonsense. And so this is the 70s, and they're, they're still just betting that this might be okay. And the late 70s in California, there was this group in San Diego who, um, particularly David Ronhart, David Ronhart and Don Norman and Jay McClelland and George Mandler, but particularly David Ronhart and Jay McClelland, who thought neural networks um, were really interesting. Okay. And that was a huge liberation. And if you read some of the stories, you know, like I was doing to do research for this, um, it seems that even though people were interested in them, there were still these limitations and it just wasn't going as far as, as you guys wanted or is that the wrong impression? So retrospectively, we know what was going on, but we didn't know at the time. So we know now that to really get the power out of these systems that learn everything from data, you need a lot of data and you need a lot of compute power. And once you have kind of millions of training cases, and you have many gigaflops of compute power, then these things really work. Back then, we would try training things on a thousand training examples, right. or 
actually the paper in Nature on backpropagation, the main example had, that we used, had like a hundred training examples. And it was trained on a machine that took um, 12 microseconds to do a floating point multiply. So it was a twelfth of a megaflop. Okay. <laughs> um, so machines now are like a million times faster than that. Yeah. And it worked moderately well. But if at the time we'd said, you know, if you gave us like 10,000 times as much data and a million times the compute power, this stuff would really work. People say, oh yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but actually that's how it was. Well, and yeah. you, you couldn't actually know that until you had all that data and all that compute power. So even though, I mean, because you, you could always plot these things like Moore's Law and, and see this stuff was you coming, could, but it's hard to You could realize the compute power was coming, yeah. but there was no way to know whether when you really got that, when you got all that compute power, although there were little signs. So the most impressive application of neural nets, or one of the most impressive ones in the 1990s, was speech recognition, where they didn't do better than the existing technology, but they did about the same as the existing technology. And there were two groups that got neural networks to work really well in the mid-90s. One was um, Morgan and Borlard at Berkeley, um, and they built themselves special purpose hardware so they could get more compute power using DSP chips. And another was a guy called Tony Robinson in Britain, who used things called transputers, which were an early kind of parallel computer. And both of those efforts involved a huge amount of engineering but the result of doing that huge amount of engineering to get more compute power was they got neural networks to work much better than other people get them to work. Not quite well enough to displace the existing technology. But we should have, retrospectively, people should have realized, look, the two groups that really put a lot of effort into getting a lot of compute power, they made neural networks work much better. We could just extrapolate that, and if you put 10 times as much effort and got 10 times the compute power, neural networks would work better than the other systems. But nobody saw, I mean, people were dimly aware of this. And I know I'm going chronologically, but you just made me think of something else that I wanted to ask. So with the DSP chips, I mean, today we've seen this huge boost from these GPUs from NVIDIA, yeah. but in the interim, I mean, were people trying to make FPGAs and other specialized chips for this Not type of Not many work, people, or? a few people, but most of the efforts weren't really serious efforts. So at Google, for example, fairly recently, they put together a team of really good people and put a lot of money in to design really good chips, special purpose chips for doing neural networks, and that was highly successful. But that was unusual. Right. Um, on the whole, what would happen is someone interested in making fancy kinds of chips would discover that neural networks needed more compute power, and so they'd sort of want to make a fancy chip to do neural networks to show off their chip-making designs yeah. rather than to solve the real problem. problem. Okay. What was interesting in Google was they got together a team of really good hardware people to make chips for neural nets, and that really worked. Okay. Well, but, okay. The, uh, yeah, yeah, no. They just have to re flip for a second. Do we have to start again? No, 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 no. I'm Australian, so I, I, I enjoy your sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> I get enough little sarcasm. And then uh, another clapper. Yeah, because yeah, I used to work for the register for a few years, so I, the Brits would train me. So which of your parents was a convict? Uh, my mother. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so, and I know you, you were in California and then you went to Carnegie Mellon and then, and then I kind of wanted to get you to, Cal to Canada and why you chose to come here. I mean, 
part of the reason was because the Defense Department was funding so much research in the U.S. and, and you didn't really agree with the yes. policies. Yes, so I was very lucky that when I first went to Carnegie Mellon, just before I went, I was in Cambridge, I'm in England. I had a job between California and Carnegie Mellon. I was in, in Cambridge for a couple of years. And I was in Cambridge and at two o'clock in the morning, the phone went. And I assumed it was my buddy Terry who'd had some new idea because he used to get very excited and call up about new ideas. <laughs> um, but it wasn't him. It was someone I'd never heard of called Charlie Smith. And he said, um, you don't know me, but I know you and we'd like to fund your research. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, um, I work for a foundation and we'd like to fund your research. And I said, well, how much are we talking about? And he said, well, how much do you need? <laughs> so I thought for a bit and said, well, I can't really answer that unless I know how much you, know, you have. He said, no, how much do you need? So I started thinking of big numbers and doubling them. Um, and I said, I need $100,000. Um, but I also said, why do you want to fund my research? And he said, well, I'm working for this foundation called the System Development Foundation. And we like to fund um, really, um, you know, out there ideas that um, possibly will never work. And I've been reading some of your research and we'd like to fund you. <laughs> <laughs> what a compliment. What a compliment. <laughs> so um, I said, so, okay, so what do I do? He said, well, you have to write us a two-page grant proposal. Okay. So I wrote a two-page grant proposal. Um, and I sent it to them, and then I had to go, and go to California and give a talk to the advisory board. The median age of the advisory board was 80. Okay. <laughs> so if you put the lights down, um, half of them went to sleep. Um, they were very distinguished people, like Beckman and people like that. Yep. But, um, and I gave this talk, and I, 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 by that point, I'd managed to ask for $350,000. Um, and... Uh, then they said, okay, we're gonna fund you, we're gonna give you $400,000 because we don't think you asked for enough. It's not like your normal granting agency. Um, and I thought, that's amazing. So um, I told the people at UCSD about that, where I'd been working. Yeah. And the, 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 the same guy then approached them and said he wanted to fund them. And they knew I got like $400,000. So they asked him for um, two million dollars, <laughs> and he gave them two and a quarter million. So then he approached people at MIT who knew about San Diego, and um, they asked him for five million dollars, and he gave them five million dollars. So then he approached people at Stanford, and um, the people at Stanford, he asked for a proposal from Stanford, and a friend of mine called Brian Smith wrote the proposal, and he asked for 32 million dollars, because he knew about MIT. Yeah. And he realized, you know, why not? Go for $32 million. You were really at the um, wrong end of this, this process. <laughs> I was. And so Charlie said, okay, you can have $32 million. Um, unfortunately, by that time, the foundation didn't have $32 million left. And I, Stanford got, I think they got about $25 million, but they spent all their time moaning about how they'd been cheated out of their $32 million. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I should have actually asked for 10 times as much. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the name of that organization? It was... It's called the System Development Foundation. Okay. But they were not tied to the... Were they tied to the Defense Department? Or no, it's totally... Yes and no. Okay. So the way it worked was this. You know what the RAND Corporation was? Yeah. They did sort of government consulting. Yeah. And they set up a not-for-profit organization called the System Development Corporation. And this not-for-profit 
um, did consulting on government software. I think they were responsible for the NORAD software. Okay. Um, so they were writing defense software for the government. And because it was defense software for the government, they accidentally made a $100 million profit. <laughs> and then the IRS found out about this and said, look, you're a not-for-profit. You're not allowed to make a $100 million profit. Um, but what we'll let you do is um, give all the money to a foundation, and the foundation has to give the money away quickly. So they set up the System Run Foundation, and they found Charlie Smith and said, your job is to get rid of this money. And so that's what was going on. Okay. And they, but you... I mean, philosophically, you did not want to take money from the I didn't want to industry. take Defense Department money. And so when that money ran out, I sat by the phone, but it didn't ring. And then I had to start applying for defense grants, because that's where I got a National Science Foundation grant, but that wasn't enough money to keep running the group at CMU. And so then I had this nasty situation. I had these graduate students who needed supporting, and I didn't want to take defense money. Um, I applied for a few defense grants, and I got one of them, but I really didn't like it. Yeah. And um, I sort of didn't like the idea that this stuff was going to be used um, for purposes that I didn't think were good. Yeah. And so then I learned about this um, Canadian Institute for Advanced Research that allowed you to get a job in Canada but still spend most of your time doing research. Because before that, if you got a professor job in Canada, you'd do a lot more teaching than you did in the States. These small private universities like Carnegie Mellon in the States, you didn't have to do much teaching, you get a lot of resources for doing research. In Canada's public universities, you did more teaching. The Canadian Institute for Advanced Research brought you out of some of that teaching so okay. you could do more research. And that was very attractive, that I could go off to this civilized town and do um, basic research. And then, but you have to convince, yet again, somebody to believe in, in neural nets at this sort of difficult time. Well, at that time. point I joined, they had a conventional AI program. Okay. And I was part of that. I was the weird guy in the conventional AI program. And then later on they disbanded the conventional AI program and I got them to start a new program in neural nets. That's right though. So they had started this AI program a couple of years before Many, you, you joined. Before I joined. So that AI program started about 1985. And I joined in 1987. Okay. And then that sort of that program finished in the mid 90s i went off to england for a few years and then when i came back i um, persuaded them to set up a program in neural nets was it like at the time when cfar was willing to fund this neural net research was that seen as as, as radical and and crazy and they were the only ones doing it or where was the interest in neural nets no, at that it point it wasn't that radical and crazy it was but it was seen as sort of quite daring to fund this area because most people in computer science thought this stuff was dead okay mm. i was reading about this dinner in in vancouver where you had all these these people that were interested in, in brain science and, and recreating the mind and, and you were there as, as the neural net guy and that this also helped. Which dinner? I can't remember this. So dinner. it was like, it's one of these stories, it's like a CIFAR story with uh, Mel Silverman, I think okay. is his name. And, and um, they, according to this story, you know, they'd brought 12 of you guys in and, and um, everybody was interested in, in replicating the brain or doing brain research, but from different fields. There was doctors okay. And, okay. and computer scientists. And if you don't remember it, it's not no, a, we I shouldn't talk about that. It's not a big deal. Um, could you tell, walk me, lots of BTs like that. Could you walk me through sort of the, we're trying to get, 
trying to get like a condensed version of this just for the, the audience of the ups and downs of this research. Would you be able to tell me like decade by decade yes. where, where neural nets were uh, as far as like hot or not kind of thing? Okay, so in the late 1950s, um, people realized you can make these adaptive machines and they came up with a couple of algorithms for adapting the weights for relatively simple neural networks and people got very excited about that. So the most significant person there was Rosenblatt, who had a method called the perceptron. And it could do some interesting things. Um, and he was very excited and thought, he basically wrote things about what's happening today. He thought that was gonna happen very soon. Okay. Um, and it, he was right, it did happen, but he was 60 years ahead of his right. time. Um, maybe 60. So by the mid 60s, um, there was a big, there was a lot of tension between people doing symbolic AI, the beginnings of symbolic AI, and people doing pattern recognition, statistical pattern recognition. The perceptrons was a kind of statistical pattern recognition. And there's a big ideological debate that was won by the AI people. And it was all about who's going to get the Defense Department money. Okay. And the AI people definitely won that. And they persuaded DARPA to invest heavily in symbolic AI and not so much in pattern recognition. And the most devastating thing for neural nets was the book by Minsky and Papert on perceptrons. And what was interesting about that was Minsky had been a sort of believer in neural nets. Right. He really understood them very well. And they had some quite clever mathematics, something called their group invariance theorem, which really demonstrated the weakness of neural nets. And there were certain things they really couldn't cope with. But that was only these limited neural nets that people knew how to train. So then there was the um, split between, there were the kinds of neural nets people could train, and they were very limited in what they could do. And there were kinds of neural nets with multiple layers of feature detectors. People didn't know how to train those. And the believers thought those are going to be very powerful if we can train them. And Minsky and Papert came down on the side of that's wishful thinking. Um, so, that basically led to the demise of the field. During the 1970s, there was a small group of people kept working on neural nets, and they were mainly interested in things like associative memory. So it's hard to believe this now, but back in the 70s, computers couldn't solve the problem of, if I give you a few terms describing something, find the thing I'm talking about. Okay. Um, like that's called associative memory. An example would be? So if I say um, I'm thinking of someone who's a politician and a movie star and old, um, most people in the 60s in America would have realized you were thinking about Ronald, or maybe the 70s would have realized you were talking about Ronald Reagan. Sure. Um, but computers couldn't do that. It was before Google, right? And it was before people were using inverted indices and things. So. Um, but neural nets could do that. And so neural nets focused on things like associative memory because they're basically given up on learning these multi, multiple layers of each detectors because nobody knew how to do it. Okay. And then in the 80s, several different groups developed backpropagation. Um, and the group at California led by Dave Rommelhart was one of those groups. And I guess that group was the one that showed that backpropagation could learn interesting feature detectors. It's not just that it could solve problems, but if you looked at the feature detectors in the middle of the network, you could make sense of them 
and they were doing interesting things. And because of that, we got a paper published in Nature. And that was a big deal. That was a big deal. And psychologists got very excited about it. And neural nets suddenly worked a lot better. And we thought that was it. We thought we're going to have a big revolution there. Um, but they didn't work quite well enough. And we didn't know why. And we now know it's because we didn't have enough data. We didn't have enough compute power. And also, the techniques we were using were slightly clumsy. We got slightly better techniques. Um, so getting better techniques was important. But the main thing was more compute power and more data. And so it was a big disappointment in the late 80s. People, so people in psychology kept believing in it and kept working on it. But people in AI and computer science and machine learning, the engineers, um, discovered that other methods worked just as well or better on small data sets. And they went off to these other methods okay. and decided neural networks was wishful thinking, basically. So there's kind of this exciting moment. You guys show this back propagation works. The paper comes out in, in nature. Psychologists get excited. It's all but very then, exciting in the mid-80s. And then, and then it, it sort of peters out yes. quickly. It doesn't completely peter out. Like Jan Lacan's system that did recognize 100 digits. That worked really well. But I was, when you read these stories, everyone talks about there's this one period where there's only five people left on planet Earth who are doing Not neural true. nets. Not true. Not okay. true at all. But what would be like the darkest time? Um, you have to ask which field you're in. Okay. So in psychology, there were all, since backpropagation came out in the mid 80s, there were lots of people who believed in that kind of approach. Um, the problem is they weren't people who were really developing the engineering aspect of it. They were more interested in how does it relate to psychological data. So their idea of a good paper would be to show that you train this neural net to do something and it behaves in this quirky way. And hey, people behave in the same quirky way. So I've got some papers like that too. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let me tell you one of those quirky papers. Yeah. So there's a particular rare kind of brain damage that adults get. Um, so it's um, dyslexia, but caused by brain damage. So these are people who could read just fine, um, but then they get brain damage and they can't read. And there's various different ways in which people can't read. So some of them have this very funny disability, which is you show, you show them a word in big black letters written on a white card, so it's very easy to read, and you show them the word peach. Okay. P-E-A-C-H, right? Um, and you say, what does that say? And they look at it and they say, apricot. Now that's weird. <laughs> that's really weird. Because you'd have thought that in order to know that it's something like an apricot, you'd have to know it was a peach. Peach first, right. I mean, you have to get from peach to, um, from the letters to peach in order to be able to say apricot, right? Yep. Or another one, you show them the word um, sympathy, okay? So sympathy written on the card, and you say, what does that say? And they say, orchestra. <laughs> now that's really weird, because they've obviously had to misread sympathy as symphony, right. and then get from symphony to orchestra. Yeah, um, that's incredible. It's incredible. Um, but it turns out, if you train a neural network to be able to turn letters into meanings, um, and you train it so that it turns P-E-A-C-H into a big vector of features that's all the features of a peach, it's obvious that all the features of an apricot are quite similar. 
And if you take this network and you damage it a bit, and you show it P-E-A-C-H, because it's slightly damaged, it'll sometimes not turn it into the vectors of the features of peach, it'll turn it into the features of apricot. And it never did have to read the word peach. It never did have to know that it said peach. It's just that the circuit that goes from the letters to the features, if you damage it, it could go to the features of apricot. And, it's all and so that was an example where something that was a big puzzle for psychologists just dropped out of these neural networks. When you trained them to read, that's just how they behaved if you damaged them. But that's the kind of work the psychologists were doing. Yeah. And that never died out. Um, and they were doing other work sort of predicting the results of experiments and so on. But that wasn't sort of developing the engineering techniques. It wasn't making the neural networks better at doing things. Sure. It was just showing when they went wrong, they went wrong the same way as people. And the number of people who were working on getting neural networks to work better was quite small. And there were relatively few um, of the sort of established researchers who were doing that. And so Joshua, he was a sort of junior established researcher, and then Jan was a medium established researcher, and I was a more senior established researcher. And we were, we, there weren't many people believed in this stuff. And, and what this, the program at the um, Canadian Institute for Advanced Research did was got people like that from all over the world um, to talk to each other much more. So made us into more, gave us more critical mass, basically. Yeah. And so, and it was just, um, just, I mean, it's a bit of luck and a bit of planning then to, yeah. to make that happen. And you never had a dark moment where you were going to throw in the towel on all of this stuff. Not that I'm going to admit to. <laughs> <laughs> and could you help us do, let's do the opposite of this and, and sort of the breakthrough moments. Um, you know, I know you were talking about some of the research Jan was doing and then around like 2011, I think you have some speech recognition work with Microsoft that takes off and then some image recognition work with Google. Could you walk me through maybe the, um, you know, like the high points that, that kept people going and, and propelled things along? Okay, so in 2006... Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, all the hospitals are just down there. We use that lyrebird thing. Have you seen that? This little the startup. It's only been around for like six months. It was mm. you train your voice, and and uh, it was pretty good. The I said thirty sentences, and, and I can uh, mimic you. Then I mean, it was okay. I think if I fed it a lot more, it would be even better. But uh, it's it was, quite scary, right? Because they can lip sync too. So now, when you see a politician saying something, you don't know whether they really said that. Yeah, but they were playing it down. But it seemed very scary yeah. to me. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you get tired of talking? What would you like to talk about? No, this is fine. Yeah? yeah? Well, I want to talk about something you'd like to talk about. It's just yeah. we... So no, no, I'm very glad to like to go through the, yeah, the historical history. sequence. Okay. We've got about 35 minutes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Don't look at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should push on, yeah? You can't filter it out? We need your help. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah, just sort of the, uh, just that we wanted to give people a couple of the highlights that kept the field revved up and, and people going. So the big problem with the neural nets had been, if you make them have lots of layers, they train very slowly. It's hard to train them at all, um, except for Jan's convolutional nets, which could be trained with many layers, but the other ones um, were very slow to train. And in 2005 and 2006, in Toronto, we developed this method of training networks with lots of layers that was more efficient. 
Um, and we had a paper in Science that was very influential that came out in 2006 that showed we could train very deep neural networks efficiently. And that got a lot of people interested. Um, so that started interest again in these deep nets with many layers of feature detectors. And then in 2009, two of the students in my lab developed um, a way of doing speech recognition using these deep nets that worked better than the existing technology on a standard benchmark. Um, and it was only slightly better, but the fact that this existing technology had 30 years of development in it, and these deep nets over a few months could do slightly better, meant that it was obvious that within a few years' time they were going to do much better, and that's what happened. So one of the students um, went to work with Microsoft and developed it for a bigger vocabulary. Um, and another student went to Google, um, a third student went to Google and um, as an intern. And when he went there, he said he wanted to replace part of their speech recognizer with this neural net. Um, and they said, oh, that's much too ambitious for an intern. Do something much more modest. And he insisted. And luckily, he had a very insightful manager who thought, well, you know, there's a small chance it'll work. And if it works, it'll be important. So yeah. why, why not let him? And so the manager let him do it, and he did it, and it worked. And at Google, they, they realized very quickly, this is the future of speech recognition. And they got it into a product in 2012. They were the first people to um, have a commercial speech recognizer based on these deep neural nets. And that came out in the Android. And at the time it came out, it suddenly made the Android better at speech recognition than Siri. So that's um, a problem for, for Apple. <laughs> and they pretty soon switched to using neural nets. Yeah. Um, but the first real commercial success was the, the work done, the big commercial success was the work done in 2009 that went into production in the Android in 2012. And the second big success was um, someone called Fei-Fei Li um, developed a big database of images with correct labels and had a public competition called the ImageNet competition. And in 2012, two more of my students um, developed a system that dramatically won the competition. It, did a, it got about almost half the error rate of the existing computer vision systems. And it was using the techniques developed by Jan Klum, plus a few extra bells and whistles, and GPUs. And Alex Krzyzewski was brilliant at programming GPUs. So he basically running two GPUs at home in his bedroom, he wiped out computer vision. <laughs> um, and that made a really big impact. Yeah. And because I think we'd already done speech recognition, the big companies realized this wasn't just a sort of one trick pony. It, this actually, it did speech recognition and now did object recognition. And so it was gonna do everything. And that's, it was that that led to the sudden change in the interest of the companies. They were very interested before then, but suddenly they all decided, oh, okay, this is it, this is the future. And throw money into it. So, right. and for you, look, I mean, you had always believed in this stuff all along, but I mean, it's a hilarious story that when we go back to the 60s, like we were talking about, you saw all the hints of this happening and you have to go all these years and then all of a sudden, you know, in this span of a few months, it yeah. just takes off. So how surprising was that to you? Or did it finally feel like, aha, you know, the world has finally come to my vision and, and what I was expecting is happening? 
Um, it was sort of a relief that people finally came to their senses. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's another piece of history that's actually quite similar, which is continental drift. So if you look at the theory of continental drift, that was developed a long, long time ago. Um, and all the geologists thought this is a completely crazy theory. This is just wishful thinking. The idea that sort of South, that, you know, Africa fits into South America and they sort of could be joined up. I mean, that's just loopy because how could it, you know, how could these things move thousands of miles? I mean, that's just crazy. And this guy was regarded as just, it was regarded as really silly, wishful thinking. Yeah. And that's how neural nets were regarded by most of the people in AI. Just silly, wishful thinking. And it turned out the guy was right. Continents really had drifted apart and they really did fit together. Um, and, it, neural, and the people who thought, we're going to learn lots of laser features and we're going to learn them all from data and it's all going to be just learned. We don't need to put in any innate knowledge except a little bit of constraints on the architecture. Um, they turned out to be right too. And they were regarded as completely crazy. And is there a bit of sadness for you that this is happening at this stage in your career yeah. as opposed to you yeah. could be at some startup or, or whatever? Yeah, there is a bit of sadness. I'm quite jealous I'm not sort of the same age as Jan and Joshua. Because um, they're at an age when they can really have a big future in this stuff. What would you do if you were just starting? Would you be at a company or would you be in academia? What, what would you pick to do? I would, right now, I'd be in the Google Brain Team, because in the Google Brain Team, I could do whatever I liked, and I could get unlimited resources. <laughs> Just a good answer. <laughs> the, uh... Made Aaron happy. <laughs> the, I mean, um... Now, the, the, like, as far as, as your relationship with, with Joshua and Jan, um, I mean, what, you guys kind of egged each other on all this time? It must have been nice to at least have some brethren in, in yeah, all Yeah, it was of very this. nice. I mean, we have very similar intuitions. We understand, and we all had lunch yesterday and we were talking about it. And basically, we all, we all have the same view, not quite the same view, but very similar views of what the main issues are right now and where, what we need to do to make major progress. And because we've talked to each other a lot, um, we really understand where each other's come from. We have slightly different views. Um, Jan doesn't like probabilities, um, but we understand each other very well. And our basic intuitions are the same. This basic intuition that because of the fact that the brain works, it has to be the case there's some way of getting all that knowledge into a system from data without programming. And then, you know, because we spent some time with Joshua and, 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 and Jan as well. I mean, unless I'm misreading th things, the three of you seem to have a fairly optimistic take on, on AI, not the same doomsday scenario that, um, you know, Elon and Stephen Hawking have been famous of late for banding about. Um, but I mean, I, I should just ask you, what is, what is your take on, on where this is heading? Are you in the, the optimistic or the pessimistic camp? I... I mean, my main take is, it's really hard to predict the future. You can predict the future quite well for a few years, and you might be able to predict what's going to happen in five years' time, but as soon as you start making predictions about what's going to happen in 20 years' time, almost always you end up hopelessly wrong. So, 
I think there's going to be all sorts of things happen we didn't expect. And the, a lot of these doomsday scenarios are sort of, they're basically based on science fiction movies. And I just think we, I mean, my main feeling is we can't predict what's going to happen. But there's some things we can predict that this technology is going to change everything. Um, I think that's fairly obvious. And so let me just give you a few examples. Um, if you take a patient in a hospital, they have a medical record. That medical record is for their whole life. They've seen doctors, they've said things to doctors, they've had tests, they've been diagnosed with things. If you ask how much of the information in that medical record is being used to decide how to treat them and to predict what's going to happen to them soon and, how to, and wonder about how to prevent it, what we've got, what we should have available is hundreds of millions of records like this. And from hundreds of millions of records like this, there's huge amounts of information there. And those huge amounts of information can make medicine much, much better, much more proactive and much more effective. And that's, so that's true for the medical records. It's true for things like um, CAT scans. You take a CAT scan, a doctor looks at a CAT scan and says, your tumor is this size. A doctor, there's all sorts of other information in the tumor, like that'll tell you how it's developing, whether it's metastasized. We believe there's lots of information that isn't being used and could, will be used in future. Because you could do this type of analysis, this, the pattern recognition. Because you can and, do it on lots of patients and yeah. you know the outcomes for all these patients. But it's the pattern recognition it's part pattern that's, recognition that's similar to voice or images. Yes. Yeah. And we know, so if you look at what's happening in, if you look at PubMed, which has abstracts and medical papers, um, if you look for deep learning, you find 200 abstracts, and about a third of those are about medical radiology, where it's obvious to everybody that pretty soon computers will be better than radiologists at dealing with standard um, CAT scans and MRI scans and X-rays and so on. Um, just because they'll have a lot more experience. And you've described radiologists as like Wiley Coyote just sitting up there about to yeah, look down and realize that... that uh... I think that was a mistake. I think what's going to happen is radiologists will spend less of their time looking at CAT scans and trying to interpret them and more of their time interacting with patients and explaining to them what's going on. Why did you and roll that, that one back a little bit? Did you get pushback from the radiologists or did you change I your got, mind? Uh, I thought about it a bit afterwards because a few radiologists were upset and pointed out that they didn't just read these things, they also interacted with patients and that was going to be harder to automate. And I think what's going to happen is bits of what doctors do are going to be automated and work much better than they did when doctors did them. But there's a lot of what doctors do that isn't just routine reading of images. And that stuff is going to take much longer for machines to replace. And what about, I mean, I have seen so, you talk about, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. So medicine's just one area. Um, someone mentioned to me something yesterday that I hadn't sort of thought about, but is obvious, which is precision agriculture. So in precision agriculture, what you do is you treat every plant. You have a field of cabbages, right? Every cabbage is an individual. This cabbage has caterpillars on it. That cabbage isn't getting quite enough potassium, um, whatever. So if you can get enough information, instead of just spraying fertilizer over everything and spraying insecticide over everything, you can give a bit more fertilizer to that cabbage and a bit more insecticide to that cabbage, and your cabbages will be happy cabbages. <laughs> um, and it's obviously much more efficient. Yeah. But 
provided you've got this huge amount of information you're using. Um, so that's going to happen. Well, what about on the jobs front? I mean, I, the, you talked about the example with the doctor. I mean, that's great because the radiologists can spend their time maybe on these more, yeah. you know, fine detailed. It, it's less good if you're maybe in manufacturing. Um, where, where an AI can train a robot to, to, to perform a lot of tasks that, that humans could do. Like, how do you, you know, this is obviously the thing that people are so afraid of, is where does this lead with jobs? So what's, what's your thinking on that? I just don't know what's going to happen. Um, obviously, it's going to make, make new jobs, new kinds of jobs. But I think what you're going to see is that the things that make us most human, things like empathy, things like the ability to understand other people and caring about other people, those are going to be the things that don't get automated. Um, maybe things like writing poetry. Um, so it's going to tend to remove the routine things. Now, there's some routine things like reading CAT scans that are highly paid, but are nevertheless routine things that aren't really exercising what makes us human. They're just our perceptual systems doing it. Um, so I think those things will be the last things to be automated and we'll be able to spend more of our time doing things like that and less of our time doing boring routine things. So if you take automated teller machines, for example, sort of you give them a check, they give you $20, that's all automated now. And it didn't actually lead to a massive loss of jobs. It actually led to more, more branches of banks that were smaller. Um, and I don't think anybody would go back and say we shouldn't have had automatic teller machines. Yeah. That was intrinsically a boring job. It's tedious to wait for the teller. It's all just much more efficient now. And it's just increased the general good. Um, I think there'll be an awful lot of that goes on. Um, but I think the social impact of all this stuff is very much up to the political system we're in. So intrinsically, making things more efficient, making producing goods more efficient, um, ought to increase the general good. Um, the only way in which that's going to be bad is if you have a society that takes all of the benefit of that increase in productivity and gives it to the top 1%. Right. That would be bad. If you take that increase in productivity and spread it equally, that's going to be good. But I mean, this is something people are already worried about and yes. doesn't seem to be so, happening. But this is a political problem, yeah. right? This isn't a problem with the technology. Yeah, well, except that, you know, in this particular case, the, there's a handful of companies that have invested dramatically more into this field than all the rest, and, and they have already gotten very wealthy and their founders are very wealthy. I mean, exactly the scenario you're, you're sort of portraying is like, playing out in 2017 to a degree. So one of the reasons I live in Canada is Canada has high taxation. <laughs> and it, if you make a lot of money, it taxes you a lot. I think that's a great system. I actually believe in taxes. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Tax, okay, Re reading the media, you wouldn't actually get this idea. Taxes are good, right? Taxes aren't bad, taxes are good. Yeah, so you say, that's what you think, that um, yeah. if somebody's benefiting if somebody's benefiting a lot, yeah. tax them a lot, yeah. and that's a great system. And just philosophically, I mean, all these years ago, you made this choice to leave the U.S. because the funding was coming from the Defense Department. Right. Obviously, today, the Defense Department is using this type of technology. I mean, there's a bit of irony in where you're 
technology. I'm not helping ended you, up. I know, but the, the fact you were the guy who stuck with this for all these decades and, and helped bring it to fruition, I'm not laying this all on you, but there must be, um, I mean, do you have any regrets on that end as, as to, to where this is Occasionally I think about up? it, but um, the thing that worries me most is um, two things, basically. Autonomous weapons, they're worrying because they're here already. And um, interference in the election, that worries me. Sort of using data about people to interfere with elections, that's clearly not good, and that's clearly happened already, so. Yeah. But on the whole, this stuff is just gonna make things more efficient and should increase the general good if you had a decent political system. So in the, you and Joshua and Jan are all feel, you know, I'd say I was a bit more optimistic maybe than I had, I had thought going into this. And then, and then everybody seems to be saying we have to set up political structures, taxes, different things to regulate this. I've been doing this long enough that, you know, I've gone to all these existential risk conferences and things like that of like, we build these safeguards into the AI systems. I don't, I just don't see Yeah, hang on, doing two, that you're confusing two different issues. Yeah. There's one scenario which is where the killer robots take over yeah. and take charge. And I think that's um, fairly ridiculous at present. And I mean, I'm not saying nothing like that could ever happen but something like that will be way, way off in the future. Okay. It's something we should have philosophers thinking about now, but we don't need to worry about it now. Might as well have the philosophers thinking about it, give them something to do, but um, it's not something that's an immediate worry. And then there's a second scenario of, what are the applications of this stuff in the short term that we need to worry about? And those things are like aut autonomous weapons and um, using bot armies to target particular voters and press their buttons. Those kinds of things we need to worry about. Yeah. No, okay, fair enough. I, the, and I appreciate that the, what could happen with this technology is, is so abstract and, and difficult to think about. The only thing that I do notice is that a lot of the questions about the safeguards tend to be academic. They tend to be at these conferences, like this existential yeah, but risk safeguard thing. Questions, the safeguard questions are all about this, this unknown future. Over. No, no, I totally appreciate that. But in the meantime, you know, all I see is companies and the government funding AI to the tilt now and sort of putting their um, foot to the to the pedal and just accelerating this as quickly as they can. I just hear a lot of like philosophical talk about the safeguards and things like that and not much practical um, competition to what's going on in so the commercial I think, space. I think the safeguards that will stop robots from taking over, um, the reason you don't see a huge effort going into that now is because um, all the people who know about this stuff know that that's way the way <laughs> off in the future. Yep. So when you even see someone like a Stephen Hawking or an Elon Musk portraying that future, you think that's what? They're just off, they don't know enough about this or they're off base or they're just, well, they just have some other motivation. Do you remember when they were going to um, make a, they, people were worried that this Large Hadron Collider might make a black hole that will gobble up the Earth? Yes. Right? I was a sort of bit worried about that because it wouldn't be good to be gobbled up by a black hole. Um, <laughs> but then I talked to some physicists and they said, you don't have to worry about that. Yep. And if the physicists would talk to us, we'd tell them you don't have to worry about the robots taking over, at least not in the next foreseeable future. Yep. Yep. Um, so I guess I, I'd be very happy if, if Hawking told me a black hole was going to gobble us all up, I would worry. Worry, yeah. <laughs> if he told us robots were going to take over, I don't worry so much. Yep. 
And the and like moving forward, um, there has been this. It's incredible to me, you know, it's just what you laid out with the advances in speech, image recognition, all this stuff appearing on our phones so quickly. Um, and I know you talked about it at the conference a little bit, but how worried are you that, that we're petering out on, on the, the neural nets and the deep learning and, and you know, we're, now we're hitting another wall or do you It's think? like this, even if the basic research petered out, even if we didn't make any more progress in the techniques, there's a huge number of applications we know are gonna work when you get enough data. So I'll go back to my example of precision agriculture, where you just make agriculture work a lot better with a lot less fertilizer and a lot less insecticide because you treat every plant as an individual plant, yeah. just like doctors ought to be treating every patient as an individual patient, and they will be able to once they know all the genomes, and you'll be able to have treatment tailored to your genome, which will be much better treatment. There's a huge amount of stuff like that's gonna happen, even with no improvements in the technology. Just by computers getting faster and by getting more data, all that stuff's gonna happen. So there's no danger of the applications dying out. They're just gonna grow. Okay. But on top of that, we're going to get better techniques, and that's yeah. going to make them grow even faster. I know. I mean, I've asked you so, all this stuff. I mean, are there any like any favorite stories you have about? Um, it's always good to have like a bit of a yarn. I mean, I, and I know you blew off the one question about you wouldn't admit to sort of your darkest hour. But I mean, is there a story there? Was there like a time when you thought this just wasn't going to work, and and you you no. did have some self doubt? I mean, I, there were many times when I thought, I'm not going to make this work. <laughs> um, but I keep going back to the fact that the brain works. The brain's a big neural network. And the brain didn't get there by somebody writing lines of code to make it work. All the knowledge in your brain came from observing the world, watching how things work, trying things out, listening to sound waves, and figuring out what to do with these sound waves. Um, there has to be very powerful learning algorithms that take sensory data and its relation to motor output and convert that into an understanding of the world. And so it has to be that stuff like this can work because it works in our brains. There's just never any doubt about that. It's just a question, can we figure it out and how long is it going to take us? Well, and that is one thing I want to ask you. It was just that, um I mean, there's guys who, obviously on the physiology side, you know, they're still trying to, whether it's the connectome or, or they're trying to figure out exactly how synapses work and neurons and this relationship and learn how the brain works that way. And, and then, you know, you've had this, this slice that's, that's neural nets and um, like with this latter stage of your career, I mean, is it, is it like an artificial general intelligence? Is that kind of what's consuming? Are you, are you going to keep going down this neural net path or are you trying to still pursue to, a broad model? I'd love model? to understand how the brain is actually doing it, right? So what's happened so far is, inspired by the fact the brain can do it, we've developed techniques that clearly aren't exactly what the brain's doing, but might be in the same general ballpark. Um, and those techniques allow us to do speech, uh, to solve a lot of the hard problems in AI, like recognizing speech, recognizing objects, playing Go, stuff like that. We could, and machine translation, that was a surprise to me that we could do machine translation. Um, we're not doing it as well as people yet, but we're amazingly good. Um, but the techniques we're using aren't exactly what the brain's doing. I would love to understand the relationship between the techniques we're using now and what the brain's doing. If I could ask God one question, 
The one question will be, does the brain use backpropagation? <laughs> <laughs> now you have to define backpropagation for me. <laughs> it's making low-level feature detectors do things that are useful for high-level feature detectors by sending backwards from the high-level feature detectors information about how they would like their inputs to be changed. Okay. And it's a question of whether you propagate gradients backwards and or is it something else you propagate and if i could ask one question that would be it is there a way to explain it without talking about propagate like terms that people wouldn't be familiar with at all i just wanted to get um because i know it's important to you and it's been important yeah. to your work is there a way I, I don't know if there is i think the easiest way is to say this is algorithm called backpropagation but it involves sending through sets of neurons information about how you would like them to change. And the question is, does the brain work like that? Does it send signals about how you would like the neurons that are feeding inputs to you to change? Okay, okay. Um, I've asked, all, uh, you've been so kind. I've asked all the big questions I have. Is there anything? Mm -hmm. I have a couple questions. Okay. Um, you know, the only thing I would like is a quick and go through our brief history of AI, of, of neural nets. Like, okay. Like a one minute. Thing. Is it? Would it be possible to do? Because you sort of started off this way. But then um, you got interrupted by sounds. Well, and just and just to have one that was condensed, where it's like uh, almost like, well, sort of like the '60s. Mm. AI was hot. The '70s. As, as much as, it was. Uh, yeah, and as much as we can. Uh, can I have a whiteboard and put some equations on it? <laughs> <laughs> Roll. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so just, um, yeah, just, I mean, I know it's difficult, but just um, just to give us a bit of a feel for AI over the decades and, and the ups and downs. So in the late 50s and early 60s, um, people developed learning algorithms for simple neural nets, and they were very hot, they were very excited about it. And then a book called Perceptrons came out in 69 and said these things, the certain things that these simple neural nets cannot do, and that killed the field. And then in the mid-80s, we discovered how to make more complicated neural nets and train them so they could solve those problems that the simple ones couldn't solve. And people got very excited about them, particularly psychologists and, but, and me. I thought these things are going to solve everything, and they didn't. And so it died again. And then in about 2005, I came up with a way of training these deep nets that was a bit more efficient, and computers were down a lot faster, and it made them work again. And then by 2009, we were doing much better speech recognition. And by 2012, we were doing much better computer vision. So now it grew again. And now it's behaving like I thought it would behave in the mid-'80s. It's solving everything. And you were kind of the seminal figure that rode this whole, th that whole wave. Actually, there were a whole bunch of us. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you, I mean, from all the reading I've done, you were the unifying force. That... I think probably I was the oldest one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that was really good. That was perfect, I thought, yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about the difference in the structure of the brain, maybe the, between a psychologist and, and the way you guys see it. As far as just even the concept of knowledge, do you view something like knowledge differently than, than the psychologist and the physiologist? Uh, there's a lot of variation in the way psychologists view things. Um, I think there's a big methodological difference like psychologists are trying to understand how people work by doing experiments to distinguish between different theories. 
Um, I'm trying to develop theories that are worth testing because my view is their theories aren't complicated enough and they're not worth testing because their theories would never work anyway. Um, my feeling is if you want to understand a really complicated device, you should build one. Yeah. When you try and build one, you really understand. I mean, you could look at cars and you could think you could understand cars. When you try and build a car, you suddenly discover that there's this stuff that has to go under the hood, otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was kind of the question I was asking you near the end, was just that, you know, there's these guys at the University of Michigan that are trying to replicate human consciousness, another guy in New Zealand that's, that's trying to build this machine that you're almost describing. Uh, but I noticed that your research still seems to be um, so focused on neural nets and deep learning and, yeah. and so what am I missing that they're like their approach well, is broader I think the to crucial, me. I think the crucial issue is how does the brain learn? Okay. How does that knowledge get in there? Okay. And when we solve that, um, everything else will open up. Will open up. Okay. Um, and, and there's there's also the sense of you know you're talking about once we figure out how the brain learns that everything else will open up. But as far as I understand it, some of the other theories that these guys are purport pushing is that you need a certain level of complexity to make something like consciousness appear. I don't think they've got a clue what they mean by consciousness. Okay. Okay. No, that's what I was curious. Okay. <laughs> so you've been through this whole path. If you could go back in time to your younger self, is there something you would tell your younger self to do differently? I know you, you've had this, this singular conviction that's worked out well for yeah. you. My advice would be learn to program and write lots of programs and test out your ideas with programs and also learn as much math as you can stomach. I could never <laughs> stomach much, yeah. but the little I learned was very helpful. And the more math you learn, the more helpful it'll be. But that combination of learning as much math as you can cope with and programming to test your ideas. The most important thing is if you have an idea, write a program that'll test whether it works. As opposed to? As opposed to just strings of words. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> um, thanks so much. I appreciate okay. it very much. Um, that was really kind of you. Thank you for your time. No, you're welcome. You're really generous. That was great. We still have like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do a portrait or? Yeah. You just can do one more portrait. I don't like portrait. No, portraits are no good. You want me to stand there and look like a criminal, yeah. right? Actually, <laughs> I want you to do. So, yeah, I don't think we're going to do like an episode where it's like, here's what the show is going to be like. This is actually the first episode, which is yeah. Jeff. And I feel bad because it's going to have like a long preamble. So you want to, you're good. So that's, so instead of doing like one big one, you want to do four. And so like each person's an episode. I think so. Just so it's, I yeah, no, it's cool. I'm just I just feel like it's more consumable that way. It's like it's. I just think podcast, the format of a podcast where it's just like, here's one conversation, here's yep. another conversation. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I hope people like it. I had enjo I enjoyed listening to these. People will listen to these guys. Are you vaping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In my booth. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
so towards the end of the interview, he says, and even though he's not religious, he said, I would love to understand the relation between the techniques we're using now and what the brain is doing. If I could ask God one question, the one question would be, does the brain use backpropagation? <laughs> then you then then you asked him to define backpropagation. He said it's making low-level feature detectors do things that are useful for high-level feature detectors by sending backwards from high-level feature detectors information on how they would like their inputs to be changed. Yeah, and it's a question if you propagate backwards or is it something else you propagate? And backpropagation is the thing that they, keeps coming up, and I'm I try to, I'm trying to understand it. Do you understand backpropagation algorithms? Only barely, only because anytime you ask these guys to explain what it is, they explain it like that. <laughs> and uh, it's not, not very humane. But in my digging through some of this stuff, um, I mean, basically, I want to say it was like the 70s or 80s when Jeff and some other researchers start fiddling around with backpropagation. The, the thing was, like, they didn't have a way to to kind of tune the neural nets to pay attention to interesting information in a, in a very helpful way. And they started to make these neural nets that were bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and so you kind of want it to, um, when it does something useful, to sort of know that. And, and when it's not doing something useful, to, to let it know that as well. And so backpropagation became this way, I guess it's sort of like it sounds, it's a way to feed information back into this neural net to, to kind of get it pointing in the right direction. And so that, um, it, you know, it, it was the first way to get this sort of interactive feedback going on and to tune the neural nets to make them better and better. Yeah, see, even that, I don't even think that was, <laughs> that explained nothing. <laughs> it's hard because it's, it's one of the fundamental things that these guys talk about. And, and I, I don't, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a computer scientist. And I'm trying to exp ex understand it as a layman. I'm going to look this one thing up where my friend Cade Metz is writing a book about the history of AI. And he explains... Back propagation in his in his book he says um, with back propagation you could build a system that recognized its own errors and adjusted its own weights using a single algorithm to send changes cascading down the hierarchy of neurons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so like in all these neural nets, they always talk about there's like these weights, which is like you're tuning parts of this computing system to pay attention to good data and ignore bad data. And yeah. so this is one where the neural net, sort of like we were talking before, where instead of it being this very hand done thing where you're always a humans overseeing everything, where the neural net starts to like come to some of these realizations on its own. And so it's, it's, it's like a it's like an information feedback loop is, is how I understand it. And so you're you're propagating, you're sending information back through the system and then find making it better based on the results that it's seen before. 
Yeah, I, I, I've been trying to think of different metaphors to explain it the way I, because I sort of can picture it in my mind what it looks like, but it's still super abstract. And the way that they they visualize neural networks is it looks a lot like sports brackets. You know what I mean? Like it starts with a lot, a lot <laughs> yeah. of teams, and then less teams, and then less teams. And so, like on the one level where there's like a lot of teams, that's that's almost the raw information that's being fed in. And then one level up, that's even that's a more abstracted version of that information. And then more as you get toward the top where there are less and less nodes, less and less teams, that's the that's the top. And then somehow the information that's reached the top needs to the top needs to then feed that back through the whole system and change every other layer so that the incoming information is is better filtered. Yeah. It's almost like the, the the device itself, the filter itself starts to be altered to adapt itself for whatever the task is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's right. And But I'm with you, man. I mean, the problem is, like, anytime you get any of these guys to explain this stuff, they're terrible at it, and they assume... I kept telling Jeff, I'm like, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old. I don't know, maybe it was like a three-year-old Jeff could understand it, but <laughs> yeah. a three-year-old me couldn't. And then, uh, I'm, you know, ever since I've been doing this, you ask these guys, they're like, okay, well, you just show... You just show the computer like a bunch of videos of cats, and you're like, "Well, but what does the computer see?" And they're like, "It sees a cat," and you're like, "But how does a computer see? It doesn't have eyes." And they're just like, "Well, it just sees it," you know. And you're like, "What?" what? <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's all these fundamental things that they can never explain very well. Yeah, and maybe I'm way off base here, but this is what this is about. This is the post interview. We're inside the van. We're just we're just talking through some of this stuff, but. Have you heard of um, the Pokemon spot? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was this recent study that that kids and especially adults too who who played Pokemon as kids now have a region of their brain that is the place where they hold all their information, visual and everything else about Pokemon. And so, and it's the same. To, it's the same as people who re, like the the. Before this, there were studies about how people had a region in their brain for reading, and yeah. people who people who have read their whole life have this spot in their brain. So when you when you see words somewhere, your brain, without you even thinking, makes the sound, or, or you you read them without even thinking about it. And so, and the people who are illiterate, they don't have this spot. And so our brains are are being altered and are being transformed by our interaction with the world, whether it's the spot in our brain for reading or whether it's the Pokemon spot. And so to me, that that is an example of how our brains are using backpropagation, right? Or am I wrong on this? No, I don't know. I mean, oh, this stuff, I find it like fascinating. It's just, it's like, um, the more you dig into it, the harder and harder it gets because because then you go talk to a bunch of brain scientists and they're like, well, I mean, like what you said makes sense, right? And intuitively, you're like, yes, that may I can see the parallels between how this works and, and maybe that's what's going on. And then you go talk to the brain scientists and they're like, well, look, we, we actually have no idea like what the mechanisms behind the Pokemon spot are. We just know that it's there and we can like see some stuff in these studies, yeah. but like we have no idea, you know, we still have no idea how we're building these computers and we're like, okay, it has a lot of neurons and the brain has a lot of neurons and 
and neurons kind of turn on and off and the computers turn on and off and that part's all fine. But then when you get to, okay, well, in the human brain, how do the neurons arrange themselves to make a memory and where does that memory live and why do some memories hang on and then nobody knows anything about how that works. So if you try to get a computer to replicate, we don't even know what we're trying to replicate, right? It's just on some level, um, like the scale of the brain. And then the most frustrating part, I think, for me, is that I think these guys, not all of them, but some of them, and not necessarily just like the godfathers, but the AI researchers in general, are just kind of like cavalier when they throw around this neuron word. And they, like, I think they maybe find it easier to explain this stuff to people if you can make some comparison to the brain, but it's like, it's so far off from us knowing if that works or not um, that that it, it just seems silly to me a little bit. Um, so I've, yeah. <laughs> and that, it is funny too though. Okay, so there's this guy, his name's Gary Lynch. He's this kind of wild brain scientist down in Southern California who I enjoy talking to. And I remember I called him a few years ago and he thought like all the computer scientist guys were just like nuts and that it was bullshit because he's like, look, I studied the brain for decades. I don't know how it works. There's no way these guys can mimic it. And then the last time I called him like a year ago, he's like, oh man, I'm working a lot more with a computer scientist now. And, and this AI stuff's doing some weird things and, and we're a lot closer than we've ever been. So I don't know, maybe there's something going on. After talking to Jeff and all these guys, then I went off and I mean, one crazy thing that's going on that I wrote a big story about is that you really used to have these two divisions between computer science and the biology people, and now it's all merging. And so last year I went to like all these animal research labs where you have these experts in bird like finches and and uh, like zebra fish and animals that that are easy to study or like in the the zebra finch the bird it has this very clear sound cortex that we understand and so you have these biologists who are now combining with the computer scientists and um, trying to like unlock these little bits of secrets in the brain and how they work and so anyway it's much more interdisciplinary than it used to be hmm. All right. I don't want to keep. I don't want to talk too long about each one because, like, the interviews are already like yeah. an hour. So, like, yeah, yeah. I want I want each episode to be pro- like definitely less than two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I know people listen to Joe Rogan for three hours, but <laughs> he's got pot. <laughs> So let's 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 add it. Let's do an outro. Right now, for this right one. Now, okay. For this one. Um, yeah. So go. that was Jeffrey Hinton. That was the first of the four Godfathers of AI, or is it one of the Horsemen of the Apocalypse? <laughs> you be the judge. So next week, I think it's going to be weekly, right? Yeah. That's how podcasts usually go. That's the goal. Next week. We're going to move on to Jan Lacoon, a Frenchman. Ah, uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
Any, do you want to tease? Yeah, Jan's, he's, Jan's kind of like maybe the most, I don't know, philosophical of the bunch. And, and he's at Facebook, so he's kind of got his hands on um, some pretty powerful and kind of spooky stuff. I mean, even just like the newsfeed stuff, like where it started off, we're all just on Facebook, and then it's like, oh, this has an impact in the real world, and, and AI is a clear part of this. Like no, but again, I think this is, you don't want to conflate the, the problems here. This is, the, if there is a problem in there, it's, it's not because of AI, it's because of lack of AI. Okay. AI can help with in it. In what sense? He's like, he's an airplane enthusiast. Yeah, I went, uh, I went flying airplanes with Jan. We never aired the gripping footage that it was. <laughs> you don't need to throw it super fast, mate. But, but uh, yeah, we you broke one of his planes, right? <laughs> I did. I threw it straight. They're, they're, mo they're model planes. They're not real planes. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not that strong. But uh, yes, I did throw his plane straight into the ground. All right. Ready? When do I go? Oh, shit. That's what I meant. <laughs> he was very, um, he was very kind. Sorry, he was gentle. It's all right. No, I don't think so. It's not going to fly today. All right. Thanks for joining us. Hope you guys enjoy that episode, and um, yeah, we're gonna kick it off with these Godfathers first, and then and then head off into some other Hello World episodes. And if you enjoyed this and want to see what Jeff looks like, go check out the episode. Go check out the episode, and you also wrote a profile on Jeff specifically, right? I did. I did like an oral history with these guys. If you want, <laughs> if you want to learn more about Jurgen Schmidhuber, I do have a, a gripping profile on him. And if you like this show, I guess rate it, review it. Wherever you get your podcast. All right. Bye.